All right, with fingers on buzzers, let's see who can first identify this scientist. He built some early vacuum tubes, enabling Robert Boyle to do his groundbreaking work. He was one of the first people to describe the rotations of the planets Mars and Jupiter. He came up with some of the basic hypotheses of gravity. In optics, he did groundbreaking work in light refraction. He had important things to say about the development of calculus. And he was one of the first people to argue that fossils were actually remnants of creatures that lived a long time ago and wrote controversial papers about how old the Earth actually is. If you guessed Robert Hooke with an E at the end, you're better at the history of science than I am. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about being a miser. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Make things better. That's the goal. Make things better by making better things. That's marketing. Marketing works. It works because we show up in the world with something that makes a change for the better. And we've discovered the single best way to learn marketing. It's called the Marketing Seminar, an interactive, ongoing, discussion-based, project-based workshop that actually works. It's back. It's back again at akimbo.com go. Find all the details. If you are serious about changing the culture, if you are serious about showing up in a way that grows your project, your business, your cause, I hope you'll check out the marketing seminar. It's at akimbo.com slash go. It's back. It works because you do. We'll see you there. Not only did Robert Hooke come up with all that stuff, granted he did it in a century where scientists were going crazy because there was so much stuff to come up with, but he was also friends with Christopher Wren and, more importantly, the first head of the Royal Society, where all of the great scientists in London regularly got together with each other to figure out how the natural world actually worked. He held that post for years and years and expanded it to become the person in charge of their experiments as well. As a result, Robert Hooke was in the middle of all of this. And then something happened. And what happened is Isaac Newton submitted a paper to the Royal Society. And in that paper, in which he argued that light was a particle, he disagreed with Robert Hooke. No blows were exchanged, but they weren't happy with each other. And in Newton's breakthrough Principia Mathematica, he gives Hooke almost no credit for the inverse square law or for any of the other work that Hooke did on developing our understanding of gravity. As a result of these interactions, the two of them never got along again. And after Hooke's death, Newton took over the Royal Society and engaged in a lifelong campaign with some petty elements to it to eliminate Hooke's influence on science, including destroying the only known portrait of Robert Hooke. If you read most of the biographies that have been written in the last 50 years about Robert Hooke, well, let me quote, he was melancholy, mistrustful, and jealous. He had an uneasy, apprehensive vanity. He was cantankerous, envious, vengeful. He had a caustic tongue. His attitude was difficult, suspicious, and irritable. Well, 
if someone wants to write about me like that in their biography of me, I'd rather they didn't write the biography at all. It turns out in new revisionist biographies of Hook that some of this was overstated. But how did it happen in the first place? Well, let's think for a minute about what happened toward the end of Robert Hook's life. He never married, never had kids, but he did regularly sleep with his niece and often told people that he was going to bequeath all of his riches to the Royal Society, enabling it to remain thriving and independent for years to come. But when he died, they found 8,000 pounds of money and gold in his room and no will, which meant that all of the money went to a distant cousin instead. Robert Hook was a miser. Robert Hook, who had been burned by Newton, decided to stop sharing. Instead of publishing his work with clarity, instead all he did was post ciphers and anagrams, short sentences that he thought he could use to prove years later that he had thought of an idea before anybody else. He regularly stole or sort of took credit for the ideas that came to him in his position as the head of the Royal Society. He didn't go out of his way to enable the people around him to do better science. And most importantly, he didn't show his work. Because when you show your work, when you're doing science, someone could find an error. Someone could steal your idea. But most important, someone could build on your idea. And Robert Hooke was so worried about getting credit, about winning, about defeating Newton, about proving that he was the better scientist, that he forgot to actually do science. And the lesson for me, when we think about the sad life of a miser who ends up alone in his room with his trunk full of money and his reputation gone, it's this. We have the chance to show our work. It is tempting to bring a scarcity mindset to a culture of ideas. But in fact, if you share an idea, you still have it. And so does the person you gave it to. It is not the same as a Bitcoin. Either you have a Bitcoin or you don't. Ideas that spread win. If someone can build on your idea, if someone can adjust an idea to turn it from not very good to better, then both of you come out ahead. And Robert Hooke, who had just about everything a scientist in London could have three centuries ago, blew it all. He blew it all because he decided he didn't have enough. And instead of bringing an abundance mindset, the opportunity to share the work to other minds, to other people who would be able to amplify it, he hoarded it. And the problem with being a miser is that while you might end up with a bunch of money when you're dead, you don't need a bunch of money when you're dead. What we need is the chance to make things better. And we do that by relentlessly giving away our best work over and over again, feeding the culture, feeding the system, because then we get to live in a world that's filled with good ideas. So that's a short rant about what we should do with our privilege and our insight. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a second with answers to questions from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? 
Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any other episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K and click the appropriate button. Whatever season you are living with right now in whichever hemisphere, I hope you'll take a minute to ask your question. Hi, Seth. This is Jim Dowling coming to you from beautiful Lake Charlotte, Nova Scotia. Your work has had a huge impact on me. Two concepts have been monumental. The smallest viable and what's it for? Working as a psychotherapist, I often wonder to myself, what's our life for? What are we doing here for? And what is the smallest viable thing I can do from one moment to the next? I'm curious about your thoughts when it comes to your life or life in general. What's it for? Maybe that's too big and esoteric, not practical enough, but that's likely why I'm sitting here staring at a beautiful glassy lake. Thank you so much for everything you do. Thanks for this, Jim. I've listened to this question at least 10 times so far. You can hear the birds, you can hear the quiet from the lake. I've looked up pictures of Clam Bay Road in Nova Scotia. What a beautiful glacial lake you're on. Thank you for your intonation and the care and the work that you do. Here's my take on what's it for. For something to be for something, it means that it was created as an intervention, that you are bringing something to the world to make a change happen. So the planet Jupiter, what is Jupiter for? Jupiter isn't for anything. Jupiter simply is Jupiter. It's there. We don't need to ask what's Jupiter for because nobody we know put any time or effort, took any risk, extended any emotional labor to create Jupiter. Therefore, it doesn't need to have a for. And my argument in the what's it for riff is if you are going to engage in the opportunity cost of doing this instead of that, it helps to know what the this is for. That the industrial era has too often pushed people to say, it's just my job. This thing I did, I did it because I got paid for it. It's my work, he'd say, I do it for pay. And when it's over, just as soon go on my way. And I need to get paid to eat but particularly the people listening to this podcast are fortunate enough and privileged enough to have choices about what we will exchange our time for. And what we exchange our time for 
should be something that we can point to and say, I changed something, that there's a what's it for to what I built. And so what are genes interested in? Well, in Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, which is misunderstood by people who haven't read it, he argues that we can understand evolution by imagining that genes have an agenda. They don't, but if we imagine they do, their behavior, if they have behavior, starts to make sense, which is genes that have grandchildren persist and genes that don't, don't. So genes aren't selfish in the sense that they want something for themselves or that they drive us to be selfish. What it means to have a selfish gene is this is a gene that is organized around the idea that more genes are better than fewer genes. So the what's it for of evolution is if you can be more fit for the environment, you're more likely to have grandchildren, which means that your genes will be passed on. So we could argue that, quote, life is for that, that life exists to pass on genes to create more of them. I think that's a little empty, and I think it's a hard way to navigate your days unless your goal is to have 140 kids, which would lead to thousands and thousands of grandchildren. So no, we can go for something bigger and better than that. But it's not clear to me in conversations with thousands of people around the world that we do better if we have a 100-year cycle for what we're trying to accomplish. For me, it's about projects. This project I am doing, is it worth doing this project? What is the project for? Compared to the other options I have in the whole wide range of projects that I could do, is this the one that is the next building block in the journey that I am on? And for everybody, it's different. But what I'm trying to help people see is that sunk costs, hoarding the chips, embracing the things we did before simply because we did them isn't the best way to decide what to do next. What makes sense to me is to realize that every day we get to make new decisions based on new information, based on new goals, and we can regard yesterday's decisions as gifts from our former self. If we don't want the gift, we don't have to take it. I talked about this in the Green Iguana episode, and I've been revisiting it in some of the work I'm doing now. So that's a long answer to your mellifluous question, but I'm really glad you shared it. Thanks. Hey, it's Seth. This is Jason from Miami. As someone who has admired your wordplay for a dog's age, but even more so in the newer spoken form that you generously show up and offer to us each week on this podcast, the rule of three was, well, in a single word, fantastic. The billion dollar worth of words episode was kind of bing, bang, boom. And it, it is in the spirit of those linguistic explorations that here is my question. For people like us doing things like this, as we go along each day, making things better by making better things, enrolling people to spread our ideas that win, we see that you carefully craft your language and use it in a way that becomes synonymous with your brand, your thinking, and how you design your interactions with your tribe. In the spirit of the purple cow, it's not about better, it's about being different. And many people take words, take language for granted. And for all of us out there who are building brands, changing culture, who want to make a ruckus, or as Steve used to say, make a dent, 
What guidance do you have on creating a unique language for people who want to change the culture? It seems almost as if the power of language is hiding in plain sight. And as we in the tribe often say, thank you for all that you do. Thank you, Jason. I haven't seen you in a long time. It's good to hear your voice. The thing is, that's more of a tone poem, a haiku, and a limerick rolled into one than a question. But I will give you a short answer, which is this. Language only works when it's shared. That calling something a mifflebob doesn't help if no one else knows what a mifflebob is. And what I have tried to do with my books ever since Permission Marketing, and probably before, is help people who are in community find precise words to be able to alert other people that they are A, in community with them, and B, to help them understand a concept that is easier to understand if we can agree on the terms we're going to use going in. And as our culture is changing more rapidly than ever before, this is showing up all over. That what's happening is that pockets of culture arrive and then they dissolve around words. Also signals, also ways that we interact, but it usually begins with words. Having a word for it helps a group of people who agree to share the word understand what they're talking about. So that's my short answer. Thanks, Jason. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.